Galatians chapter 4, we begin in verse 1. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Then if you would look at 1 John chapter 3, in verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 3. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. Verse 6, back in Galatians chapter 4, you find this statement, Because ye are sons. Because ye are sons. Paul is dealing, in a sense, uh, on two different planes in this section in Galatians. In in one sense, he's dealing with uh, the age, the dispensation, if you will. Describing how the old dispensation was a time of immaturity and childishness, so to speak. And this new dispensation, an age of grace, is come to full maturity. So he deals from that perspective, I suppose you could call that a macro perspective, but he also deals with the matter on a personal level as it pertains to uh, each and every Christian. Paul is laboring in this section of Galatians to break what could be called a bewitching spell that had been cast over the Galatians by the Judaizers. O foolish Galatians, he writes in chapter 3 and verse 1, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth? And this is why I say there's a sense in which a spell had been cast over them. Who hath bewitched you? They had indeed been bewitched or fooled by the Judaizers. The ones who may have appeared to be very scholarly and godly, the ones who professed to be able to lead the Galatians forward with God were, in fact, leading them away from God. Very strong irony to the situation that Paul is dealing with when he writes to the Galatians. 
And what a terrible deception to fall into, thinking you're going on with God, but in fact you're being lured away from God. And Paul found occasion to marvel at this, so he writes chapter 1, verse 6, I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Paul was astonished at what had happened to the Galatians. He marveled at it. And the method the Judaizers were employing in their deception is not hard to discover. They were endeavoring to displace the hearing of faith with the works of the law. It seems that it's been the devil's design throughout the course of church history to distort the Christian's understanding of justification and sanctification and how the two of them relate to each other. And this is something that is so important for the Christian to come to grips with. I hope that homeschooling moms devote much time to this very thing in your theological studies. Teach your children to know the difference between justification and sanctification and how they relate to each other. You see, if the devil can create confusion in this matter, then he can accomplish his aim of making that Christian be very ineffective as a witness for Christ, as well as keeping that Christian in a form of bondage where he should not be. It becomes a magnified tragedy when those who are so free nevertheless become so entangled with the yoke of bondage, when those who are exalted in God's grace become so servile in their outlook and in their character and conduct. The devil certainly knows that there's nothing attractive about a Christian in bondage. The most effective way to nullify a Christian's testimony is to make him appear to be a slave in chains to a religion. A Christian who knows his freedom, on the other hand, because he understands the grounds of his acceptance with God, and he understands the grace of God, and he knows that Jesus paid it all. This is the Christian that will shine brightly for Christ. This is the Christian who was enabled by the grace of God to maintain stability even in the midst of trying circumstances. This is the Christian, therefore, who will be most uh, effective in extending Christ's kingdom. There's something attractive about a Christian who knows his freedom, uh, an attraction that very often even the world can detect. And this attractiveness is traceable to the freedom he knows in his conscience and his awareness that God's grace exalts him. How does God's grace exalt us? How does God's grace take an undeserving, hell-bound sinner from the fearful pit and the miry clay and set that saved sinner on a rock, establishing his way? The psalmist certainly captured the truth of the power of saving grace when he wrote, He put a new song in my mouth, Our God to magnify. Many shall see it and shall fear, 
and on the Lord rely. The paraphrased version of Psalm 40. The subject of how high God's grace exalts us is taken up by Paul in the section in Galatians that we've just read from. It begins back in chapter 3 and verse 26, where Paul writes, For ye are all the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And the term children could literally read their sons. Ye are all the sons of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And this statement then introduces us to the subject of sonship. He touches on the subject again in the last verse in chapter 3. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. A son, you see, is an heir, one who is marked to inherit great riches. And it is this subject of being a son or an heir that carries us into chapter 4. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all. And look with me, if you would, again, in chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 4 through 7 again, and I want you to see in this reading the emphasis on sonship and being an heir. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Do you catch the emphasis in those verses on sonship and being heirs of Jesus Christ? That is how high the grace of God exalts us. And if Paul could make the Galatians realize how highly God's grace exalted them, then he would also make them realize that they had no need for the legalistic Judaizers who couldn't possibly lead them through their false gospel into the kind of exaltation that they could know and experience through the gospel. I'm afraid that the problems the Galatians faced is still a problem for many Christians today. We simply don't know, or we lose sight of how exalted we are in the grace of God. And in order to know how exalted we are, it becomes necessary for us to realize anew and afresh our sonship. So this is the subject and the challenge that I'd like to put before you this afternoon. If you would bask in the freedom of the gospel, if you would learn to revel in the love of God, then you must realize your sonship. And for just the few moments that remain, I'm going to draw your attention to just two points that will instruct you as to how you may realize your sonship. Consider with me, first of all, that you can realize your sonship, one, by knowing the nature of that sonship. What do we mean? What does Paul mean when he speaks of us being sons? 
Verses 4 and 5 in chapter 4 make it plain to us that God's purpose in redemption was to exalt believing sinners to become children or sons of God. Look at verses 4 and 5 again with me. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Those verses, then, teach us clearly that God's aim in sending forth his Son was to bring believers in Christ into the very family of God. You could argue, therefore, that our sonship is a purchased blessing. If God would adopt us into his family, he must first purchase us. And the purchase price must be such that it would satisfy the demands of God against us. We know, of course, that the blood of Christ did satisfy those demands. So there's a very close tie between our sonship and our redemption. God redeemed us with the aim of bringing us into the very family of God. In other verses in the New Testament in which adoption is mentioned, we discover that our sonship is grounded in God's eternal purpose or in predestination. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Ephesians 1 and verse 5. And we see from this statement why adoption is referred to by our catechism as an act of God's free grace. Listen to question number 34 from our shorter catechism. What is adoption? Adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. You see what I mean, I hope, when I say that the grace of God exalts us. What a marvel of grace that we, undeserving sinners, would have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. In Romans 8, verse 15, we learn that the nature of our sonship is such that it's connected to the freedom we enjoy in Christ. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. Paul writes, this is Romans 8, 15. But, in contrast to that spirit of bondage, ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. A few verses later in that same chapter, Romans 8, Paul teaches us that the nature of our adoption is such that it teaches us to look ahead to glory. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit, the redemption of our body. Chapter 8, verse 23. This teaches us to look ahead. Our sonship, you see, carries with it the sure hope of heaven. If we are the children of God, purchased by the blood of Christ, graciously brought into the family of God in accordance with God's eternal and predestinating plan, 
then we cannot perish. We must have everlasting life. Now I find it interesting that our shorter catechism links these three things together, justification, adoption, and sanctification. Listen to question number 32, which asks this. What benefits do they that are effectually called partake of in this life? So we're dealing with something now very practical to those that are effectually called. What benefits do they that are effectually called partake of in this life? And the answer, they that are effectually called do in this life partake of justification, adoption, and sanctification, and the several benefits which in this life do either accompany or flow from them. I think it would be fair to say that justification speaks to the issue of our standing with God. Sanctification speaks to the issue of our walk with God. And adoption speaks to the issue of our relationship to God. Did you get that? Justification, our standing. Sanctification, our walk. Adoption, our relationship. And when you analyze these terms this way, then I think it's fair also to conclude that adoption is the grace that I think you could say elevates us higher than the rest. Justification is, of course, a great blessing, and it provides the motivation for our sanctification. But the thing you have to remember about justification is that it's a forensic term. That means it's a legal term. It's a high court term. And in that respect, it's something of an impersonal term. I know I've used this illustration before, but I think it does so vividly illustrate what I'm trying to communicate now that I refer to it again. How many people do you know in the world of our court system that will go to court, present their case, hopefully be acquitted by the judge, and then following that acquittal, the judge would say to you, why don't you come to my house for dinner tonight now that I've acquitted you? In fact, now that I've acquitted you, why don't you just make plans to come and move in with me and my family? It's a rather far-fetched picture, isn't it, of uh, the civil courts, the legal courts that we know today? We know that in the real world, when a man goes to court and manages to escape a guilty verdict, Maybe you've been pulled over for speeding. You go and present your case to the judge. He dismisses or acquits you, and you are happy to walk out of that courtroom and hope that you never have to return there. This is why I say that in the spiritual realm, there's a sense in which adoption exalts us even higher than our justification. Now, don't get me wrong, justification takes us very high. It certainly magnifies God's grace. Sinners have their sins imputed to Christ and have Christ's righteousness imputed to them. 
and then being declared righteous on the basis of that perfect righteousness that's imputed to us, oh, that lifts us high, and we magnify God's grace in our justification, and we have peace with God as a result. We thank God for the glorious truth that there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. But the point I'm making now is that we view our justification in terms of God's righteousness. Indeed, I've defined justification many times as simply our salvation as it relates to God's justice. In our adoption, we're able to think of salvation as it relates to God's love. Justification, salvation in his justice, adoption, salvation as it relates to his love. We read earlier, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. It is the grace then of adoption that takes us from what could be a cold and frightening courtroom scenario that we are glad to escape by God's grace and it brings us into a personal and intimate place with our God because it lifts us to the glorious reality that we are members of God's family and this is what enables us to bask in the warmth of God's love. I believe that it's in connection with our adoption and the love behind that adoption that we're enabled to sing with the hymn writer, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love, leading onward, leading homeward, to my glorious rest above. And especially that statement leading homeward at least suggests adoption to us, does it not? How do we realize our sonship then? We must know something of the nature of it. It's rooted in our redemption. It's a part of God's eternal plan. And it's a manifestation of his love that passes understanding. It's something that's ministered to our hearts by the Spirit of God. So it is something that we are capable of enjoying now. Consider with me then, secondly and finally, that we may realize our sonship by basking in the blessing of it. By basking in the blessing of it. Because ye are sons, Paul writes, Galatians 4 and verse 6, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You begin to see then, don't you, what a spiritual idea this is. I have heard adoption described as something that is both objective and subjective. In an objective sense, it, it speaks of our standing. We have a standing. We have been awarded um, all the privileges, the catechism answer says, of the sons of God. 
And then from a subjective perspective, it is the spirit of adoption, the spirit of his son that enables us in our hearts, from our hearts, to call upon God as our Father. We must bask in the blessing of being able to call God our Father. We are taught to reckon on this truth every time we pray. We're taught to pray, aren't we? Our Father, which art in heaven. You know, there are times when you may go to pray, and the flesh makes you feel so sluggish spiritually that you find it difficult to even know how to start. Or there are other times when you go to pray, and you may be so anxious about so many things, and you feel so wound up tight inside that you scarcely know how to begin to unravel all of the things that are perplexing you. Or you may go to prayer with a keen sense of your sin in the knowledge that you come short of the glory of God. I find it to be a very practical blessing to allow my thoughts to dwell first on the truth that God is our Father, which art in heaven. I'm pretty sure it's Martin Lloyd-Jones in his um, series on the Sermon on the Mount where he deals with this petition, Our Father which art in heaven. And Lloyd-Jones suggests that quite often that is the answer to the very things that you're praying for. A sense that God is your Father. That answers to so many hard perplexities that Christians suffer from. If I need my heart to be warmed so I can begin to pray, What a glorious truth to warm the heart, the truth that God is our Father, as well as the truth that it cost Christ his lifeblood in order for us to pray that petition. Or if I go to prayer and find myself so anxious that I don't even know how to begin, I know of nothing so settling to the heart than the realization that God is our Father and he's our Father in heaven which means he rules and reigns and knows all about the things that cause us to become anxious. Or if I go to pray with a sense of my unworthiness, it's always good to see that my sin, notwithstanding, still I'm instructed to pray this way. Our Father, which art in heaven, Your sins, you see, can never blot out a single word or letter out of God's word. The truth will remain that God is our Father in heaven, even when we don't feel particularly worthy to call him our Father which art in heaven. This is part of what it means to bask in the blessings of your sonship. We go to God, we call him our Father. We have access to his throne. It's as if the throne room of God is turned into the living room for God's children. So available does he make himself to those that are adopted into his family. And then we bask in the blessing of being partakers of the divine nature. 2 Peter 1 and verse 4, Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, 
that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. You see, when the Lord adopts us into his family, he also sets in motion the work of a spirit in our hearts in such a way that we begin to bear a family resemblance to our Savior. Maybe you've met children along the way that you know are adopted children in the physical sense. You would never know that they were adopted if the parents or the children didn't tell you. They take on a resemblance to the ones who have adopted them in such a family that they appear to be natural members of that family. You know, the same thing is true spiritually. We take on the resemblance of Christ's character through the spirit of adoption who works in us and works through us. And then there's also the blessing of God's chastisement. This is a sure mark of our adoption. Hebrews 12, verses 7 and 8, If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Now, I'm not about to suggest that chastisement in and of itself is something that we care to bask in. But you've heard me say it on many occasions that one of the aspects of our Christian freedom that we do need to bask in is the freedom to interpret every circumstance of life as coming from a loving Heavenly Father. And what gives you and me the freedom to interpret what may be a frowning providence this way? Well, it's the truth that we've been brought into the family of God by adoption. An adoption that is grounded in redemption. And so I wonder this afternoon, are you basking in the blessings of your sonship? Has God's grace lifted you? It should. After all, you were a guilty sinner. And yet, by God's grace, you've been declared righteous. Only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to you and received by faith alone. And you were alienated from God. You were a stranger to the covenants of promise, and you had no hope, and you were without God in the world, Ephesians 1.12. But now you've been brought nigh by the blood of Christ. How nigh, or how near? Well, you've been brought right into the very family of God. You've been made a son, and if a son, then an heir, and if an heir, then a joint heir with Christ. And so now you are no longer a stranger, but a fellow citizen with the saints and of the household of God. Oh, how I hope today, on this Lord's day, that God's grace will lift you. How I pray that you may know in your heart how exalted you are by your adoption into the family of God. May God deliver us all from anything that would seek to lead us away from such truths, to deny or downplay them, 
And we're not ignorant of the devil's devices. We know that he has an aim in trying to convince us otherwise. Oh, may we study our adoption earnestly so that we'll know the glorious privileges that belong to us for time and for eternity. Let's close then in prayer. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this meeting to a close, we thank thee for the glorious truth of our adoption in Jesus Christ. We thank thee for the spirit of adoption that's given to our hearts that enables us to call on God as our Father which art in heaven. Lord, we pray that the glorious truth of our family membership may indeed lift us high and and enable us to stay above the fray that we find in this present evil world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.